Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Amen. If you have a Bible, let me ask you to take it and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where our attention will be devoted to verses 1 to 8 this morning. I remember as a young believer, really it was in my later high school years, struggling with the question, what is God's will for my life? I wonder if perhaps some of you, you've ever wondered that before, you've ever wrestled with that same question, finding the will of God. What is the will of God for my life? Where does He want me to go to college? Who should I marry? What career path should I choose? What job should I take? Should I do this? Should I do that? I wonder if you've ever wrestled with those kinds of big life questions before. And I think that one of the main reasons why is because I was somewhat paralyzed by the fear that I might make a decision, I might choose a path that would put me outside of the will of God and, and therefore, in essence, ruin my life. And I was, I was terrified by that because, to me, it seemed as though the will of God was something that was hidden, it was something that was hard to find. And then, as a teenager, I, I came across a little book, it was more like a pamphlet really, by John MacArthur entitled, Found God's Will. And it helped me tremendously in knowing and discerning the will of God for my life. Dr. MacArthur writes, as I travel around, one of the questions I'm asked most often is, how can a Christian know the will of God for his life? Most of us acknowledge that God has a plan for the life of every believer, but often there seems to be some doubt in finding just which way that plan goes at a particular juncture. Some think that God's will is lost. But the Christian must begin with this simple assumption. Since God has a will for us, He must want us to know it. And if so, then we could expect Him to communicate it to us in the most obvious way. How would that be, He asks? Through the Bible, His revelation. Therefore, He says, I believe that what one needs to know about the will of God is clearly revealed in the pages of the Word of God. God's will is, in fact, very explicit in Scripture. And here this morning, church, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we find one of those clear passages about God's will. We find a passage that 
reveals for us very plainly what the will of God is for our lives. In fact, Paul tells us very explicitly here what God's will is. Notice verse 3 of our text this morning. Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is God's will for my life? Friend, God's will for you is that you would live a holy life. That's His will for you. That's it. He, he wants you to be holy. He wants you to pursue holiness. And specifically, as we'll discover here this morning, His will for you is that you would pursue holiness in the area of sexual purity. He wants you to be sexually pure. He wants you to flee sexual immorality. That's his will for you. And we'll see that very clearly here this morning. Now, because our topic here this morning is sexual purity, allow me this morning just to make a few pastoral comments as we begin here, okay? First of all, number one, first, parents, in light of today's passage, do not miss the unique opportunity that you have with your children in age-appropriate ways to have conversations about sexual purity. I know it is uncomfortable, but it is critical. So do not waste this opportunity this morning, this chance. Here's the second thing. I am aware of the enemy's tactics here this morning. Satan is a deceiver and he is a tempter. And he's going to try at least two different tactics here this morning to tempt you. For some, his desire is to tempt you with the guilt of your past sexual sin. That's how he's going to tempt you this morning. He wants to accuse you. You are unclean. You have blown it. God will never accept you. And so, for some, what you're going to need to do this morning is you are going to need to run to the cross of Christ and, and be reminded that there is forgiveness, there is cleansing for every sin that you have committed because of the blood of Jesus and that because of the cross, your guilt and your shame, they're gone. And what you need to do is you need to run to the cross but there's a second temptation this morning, I think, that Satan wants to do, is he wants to tempt some here this morning, that in light of these pa this passage, your response would be, this seems really outdated. Pastor, this is modern times, almost prudish, and I would remind you here this morning that this is not just the will of God for you, but this is the word of God to you, and therefore you must submit your life to what it says. So in light of that, let's read our text here this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand with me out of honor for the reading of God's Word? The Apostle Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what 
instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. You can be seated this morning. The letter of 1 Thessalonians could really be broken up into two sections. Two sections. The first section consisting here of chapters 1 to 3, where we've been over the last several weeks together, where Paul has been primarily expressing his gratitude to God for his gracious work in the lives of these Thessalonian believers, looking mainly at the past as he thanks God for what not only he has done in their lives, but also what he is doing currently in this church. And so up until now, really, it's mainly been narrative in chapters 1 to 3. It's been narrative. But beginning here now in chapters 4 and 5, which make up the second half, the second section of this letter, Paul moves now from the past to the present. Really, he moves from narrative, his own personal history with this church now, to exhortation, to specific commands and instructions that he has for the church. In fact, if you were to briefly just skim through chapters 4 and 5, you would find perhaps about a dozen or so, a few dozen really commands here in the second section of this letter. Last week, we saw chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians that's really a preview of many of the themes that we'll see now addressed here in this second section. For example, notice there chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, he's going to address the theme of holiness, specifically in regard to sexual purity, as we'll see. And then in verses 9 to 12 of chapter 4, he's going to talk about love, brotherly love in the church. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, all the way, notice, through chapter 5, verse 11, he's going to address the coming of the Lord and the return of Christ, which has already been one of the major themes of this letter. In fact, it's been mentioned in every chapter of this letter. And then, finally, notice in chapter 5, verse 12, really through the end of this letter, Paul, he's going to conclude with some rapid-fire commands here that center around our relationships together in the local church. And all of this, each of, each of these commands is about how we live in light of the coming of Christ. That's why we've entitled this sermon series, Living in Light of His Coming. 
That because Jesus is returning, this is, friends, how we should live. In a way that reflects the transforming gospel that has saved us. And, and so that we would be blameless in holiness before our God at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 13. That's what he's doing here. And it would also appear that this entire section here, chapters 4 and 5, it deals with the specific issues that were raised by Timothy's report as he comes back to Corinth where Paul is after his visit. And so Paul's desire then here is to address some of these deficiencies, some of these areas lacking in their faith and practice. Remember, that's, that's why he wants to be with them. Notice chapter 3, verse 10, to see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So there's something lacking, and that's what he wants to address now in chapters 4 and 5. And so having prayed for them in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 3, that they would be blameless in holiness, now beginning here in chapter 4, verse 1, he exhorts them to that end. And chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he exhorts them, notice, to live lives that are pleasing to God. He wants them to please God by the way that they live. And then, in verses 3 to 8, he challenges them with a specific exhortation to be blameless in holiness, namely in the area of sexual purity. So, two points I want you to see this morning. Number one... An exhortation to pleasing God, verses 1 and 2. And then second, a specific exhortation to sexual purity, verses 3 to 8. So first, notice an exhortation to pleasing God. Verse 1, notice it begins, finally then, brothers. And that, that phrase there, finally then, rather than signifying that, you know, Paul's sort of wrapping things up here and concluding his letter. Instead, it, it signifies now a, a change in subject matter, where, where Paul now in this next session, section, he, he moves to exhorting them. And so in verses 1 and 2 then, it, it, the, this serves really as sort of a, an introduction, a heading to all that he's going to say here in chapters 4 and 5. So this exhortation in verses 1 and 2, it's sort of the general exhortation, the, the broad exhortation, sort of the umbrella that really encompasses everything Paul has to say here now in these final two chapters. And what's his general exhortation here? Well, look there at verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and please God. There it is. That's the exhortation. That, that is the command hanging over all of chapters 4 and 5. That they would live to please God. So if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what is the main command of the Christian life. What's the summary of the whole Christian life? Paul's answer would be, you should aim 
in everything to please God. And how we do that, how we live to please God, is seen in all the commands that are going to follow now here in chapters 4 and 5. The Christian's aim, the Christian's goal in life is to live in such a way that we please God. A life pleasing to God. That's the goal. Verse 1. Some translators translate it. The ESV does as well as how you ought to walk. Literally, that's what it says. Walk. Which, by the way, is a helpful metaphor for the Christian life because it, it carries the idea of making progress. Leon Morris in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians comments, walk refers here to the whole of man's manner of living, which suggests the idea of a continual, I love this word, unspectacular advance which should characterize the Christian. So the Christian life is about walking. That's, that's what sanctification is, beloved. It is it is walking, it is progress, it is step by step, it is steady and continual. And so this is about how we live the Christian life. This is about how we walk and we are to, Paul says, walk in such a way in verse 1 as to please God. Verse 1, notice the, here the tone of his exhortation to them. Notice the tone, verse 1, finally, then, brothers, which, by the way, is now the seventh time in this letter Paul has referred to them by this title. Finally, then, brothers, notice, we ask and we urge you. We ask and we urge. Hear, hear the warmth there in Paul's exhortation. He, he is asking them, brother to brother, but Notice also the urgency because he says, we ask and we urge you, we, we implore you, we plead with you. And just so there's no confusion that the commands to follow here in chapters 4 and 5 are simply Paul's own ideas, Paul's own words, like, you know, personal advice, take it or leave it kind of thing. Verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Or verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So this isn't Paul's own advice. No, this, these are commands here that come with the authority of the Lord Jesus himself. And the essence of his appeal here is how you ought to walk, how you ought to live to please God. Now, that raises a very good question. What does it mean to please God? Can, can a Christian actually live in such a way that it pleases God? And you might be surprised how many people reject this idea or are confused by this idea. And especially in our, we'll say, reform circles. Perhaps because, you know, we have a firm grip on the doctrine of total depravity and, you know, we're, we're all guilty sinners. We can't please God. 
Everything we do is stained by sin. We can't please God. Maybe it's because we want to protect the doctrine of justification by faith alone that being accepted by God is only on the basis of the righteousness of Christ and therefore nothing we can do can please God. Not on our own. So can Christians really please God? And beloved, the Bible's answer is yes. You can live in such a way to please God. We see it repeated throughout the Scripture. Notice with me, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God, please Him. Colossians 3.20. This is to children, by the way. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, you can please God by your obedience to your parents. Colossians 1.10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. You can be fully pleasing to Him. Or even in our own letter here, 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul says, We speak not to please man, but to please God. So, let's be very clear this morning. Paul, he isn't commending here some kind of meritorious, self justifying, works-based salvation. No. Our acceptance with God is based solely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone and faith in Him alone. But as those who have been justified, who have been declared righteous by the imputed righteousness of Christ, we are now, Paul says, to please the God who has graciously saved us and forgiven us in Christ. So how do we do that? How, how do we please God? Well, look there, verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. How do you please God? We live in obedience to His commands. We walk, we live according to God's way. And as we do that, Trusting Him, believing His Word, believing that His commands are good for us, walking by faith. He's pleased with that. So, we walk by faith in obedience to His commands. That's the goal. His way is the right way. And we seek to please the one who has saved us. That, that should be the chief pursuit of every believer. So Christian, hear me this morning. God is pleased with your imperfect walk by faith through Christ. As you rest in Him, you trust in the righteousness of Christ, which is yours by faith, you make it your aim to please Him. That, that's the goal. And notice verse 1, this is what the Thessalonians, in fact, were doing. Look there, verse 1. As you receive from us how you ought to live, just as you are 
doing. Now that must be there, notice a reference to Paul's time with them before he was prematurely forced to leave them because Paul, it seems, had already taught them this. They were already doing this. They were already living out what he had taught them. But notice there in verse 1, he wants them to do it more and more, continuing, continual growth, not being satisfied with where they are, but seeking to grow in this. And notice in verse 2, these instructions they were to follow, by the way, were nothing new. Right, look there, verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul had already taught them this, and now he's just simply reminding them of this. And beloved, this is the pathway of discipleship for everybody. You see, so often I think many times we think that sanctification, growth in Christ is learning new things. When in reality, it's really just being reminded of and applying what we already know and that we don't grow out of. And the aim of, Paul says, the Christian is to live a life that's pleasing to God by walking more and more in obedience to His command. So let me ask you this morning, very practically, how can you please God by obeying God this week? Is there an area of your life right now, probably whatever comes to mind right now, where you aren't obeying God, and therefore you aren't pleasing Him with your life? And then, verses 3 to 8, notice Paul turns here and focuses on a specific way in which they should seek to please Him. Christian, do you want to please God with your life? Then it begins, Paul says, in the area of sanctification, and namely, in our sexual purity. Point number two, a specific exhortation to sexual purity, verses three to eight. Verse three, Paul says that one specific way, and really notice it's the first on the list, in which the Thessalonians can live in such a way that pleases God is in the area of holiness. Holy living. That the Christian life should be characterized by holiness. It, it, it should be the distinguishing, defining mark from all others. Verse 3, for this, this is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness. So Paul's prayer then, notice back, chapter 3, verse 13, that they be blameless in holiness, anticipates this exhortation here now in verse 3, that they, the will of God for them is their sanctification or their holiness. So Christian, the will of God for you, above everything else, is holiness. He wants you to grow in holiness. He wants you to pursue holy living. Verse 3. Look there, sanctification, it means, it means to be set apart, to be distinct. So to be more distinctly like Christ, to, to increasingly reflect the character of God in how you live. That's, that's God's will for you, to become more and more holy. 
So God's will isn't hidden. <laughs> you, you don't have to guess what it is. It's clear. So before then, you seek God's will in some of these other areas of your life. Who should I marry? Where should I go to college? What job should I take? You need to make sure that you're seeking to be obedient to his revealed will for you. And God's will for you is that you be holy. And then in verses 3 to 8, notice he highlights this one area of sexual purity. Look there, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Church, this is so relevant. Not only in Paul's own day, but in our day as well, because sexual immorality is just as rampant today as it was in first century Thessalonica. Commentator David Chapman, notice what he says. He helps us to understand the first century Greco-Roman world. He says, Roman sexual practices famously endorsed behavior that Paul knew to be sexually immoral. Even though marital fidelity was commonly expected from Roman wives, their husbands might regularly participate in dinner parties that included sex slaves. Young men were often encouraged to be sexually active prior to marriage. Ancient Roman literature contains numerous stories of adulterous males and in some tales even including married women who pursue lovers. Homosexuality was widely practiced, especially among the Greeks, including forms of pedophilia. Cities were famous for their prostitutes, such as Thessalonica. And amid such widespread licentiousness, the church's pagan neighbors likely thought these Christians strange to refuse such behavior. Indeed, some members of the church, having participated in such Roman sensuality prior to coming to Christ likely still felt the addictive pull of such temptations. Not much has changed. Beloved, it is safe to say that we are living in a day where sexual purity is rampant in our culture. TV, movies, high school, college campuses, internet, smartphones, and not just in our culture, in the church. The most recent statistic I came across said that 64% of Christian men in the church and 15% of Christian women in the church say that they look at pornography at least once a month. It's rampant. And so... The main way the Christian is to seek to please God and pursue holiness is by being sexually pure. And notice in verses 3 to 8, in order to encourage us to pursue sexual purity, Paul gives us here three exhortations related to sexual purity and three motivations for why we should pursue it. Three exhortations, three commands, and three motivations. First, just notice here, three exhortations. Exhortation number one, we are to abstain 
from sexual immorality. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That verb there, notice, abstain, it's, it's a strong one, meaning to keep away from, to, to avoid. The Christian is to abstain and the noun, notice, sexual immorality, it, it comes from the Greek word porneia, from which we get the word pornography, which is a very broad term, by the way, meaning it, it includes any form of sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. So it, it is an all-encompassing term. And so that there's no misunderstanding here, Paul, he is addressing here all forms of sexual misconduct. Premarital, extramarital, homosexual, heterosexual, all forms. Not, not in moderation, in separation. Verse 5, all lustful passions. Verse 7, all impurity. So Paul, listen, the Bible is clear. It, scripture isn't ambiguous on the topic of sexual purity. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, flee sexual immorality, porneia. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Colossians 3, 5, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, and passion. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral. The Bible's clear. Now, in verse 3, notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say abstain from sex. No. Sex is a good Sweet gift from God. It is a holy gift in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. But it is forbidden in every other context, visually, verbally, mentally, physically, whether with a partner or alone behind closed doors. So this exhortation is about what we do with our minds, what we do with our affections, what we do with our bodies in order to avoid sexual immorality and pursue sexual holiness. And beloved, in a culture where this is the norm, we are to please God by abstaining from every form of sexual immorality. We abstain. That's the first exhortation. Exhortation number two. Here it is. 
We practice self-control. Look at verses 4 and 5. That each one of you know how to control his own body. That's the way the ESV translates it. Literally, take his own vessel. Control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So, if verse 3 is the negative exhortation, abstain. Verse 4 is the positive exhortation, control. So, verse 4, we are to please God by learning how to control our sexual desires. In other words, Paul is saying the Christian should seek to cultivate in their life the fruit of the spirit of self-control. Self-control. We, we are to control our bodies. We are to control our sexual cravings. We are to control our sinful sexual desires. In his really helpful book on, on the fruit of the spirit, in his chapter on self-control, author Jerry Bridges, he writes this. Listen to what he says. He says, self-control is probably best defined as the governing of one's desires. In the area of sexual self-control, this belongs to both the body and the mind. The Christian must exercise self-control not only in the area of sexual activity, but in the area of impure thoughts and lustful looks as well. Our minds, he says, are like mental greenhouses where our actions grow. People seldom fall suddenly into sexual immorality. No, he writes, these actions are savored in the mind long before they are enjoyed in reality and the gates of our thought lives are primarily our eyes and our ears. But in verse 4, Paul says, the Christian is to cultivate self-control in both the body and the mind. And this will be in large measure based on, friend, what passes through the gates of your eyes and your ears. And notice in verse 4, this is for the purpose of not only holiness, but honor. Look at verse 4, to control his own body in holiness and honor. Meaning what? Meaning that self-control over your sexual desires is for the purpose of not only honoring God, but honoring others as well. Sexual immorality dishonors God and others. In fact, notice verse 5 is the opposite of verse 4. So the way of the Christian, he says, is self-control, but for the Gentiles, he means the unbelievers, NIV translates it the heathen, the Gentiles, it's passion of lust. In other words, lustful passions are self-centered, self-focused, and they disrespect 
they take advantage of others. They dishonor others. And they don't, he says, know God, but you do know God, and therefore you must be radically different. Implying also that seeking sexual purity is evidence you know God. You practice self-control. Exhortation number three, do not wrong your brother or sister. Look at verse six, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Now, some commentators think Paul has changed subjects here. He's moved from sexual purity now to defrauding other people. But I think given the context and the fact that verses 3 to 8 are really one sentence in the original language, it would seem the context here is still that of sexual purity. So Paul then is exhorting these believers to abstain from sexual immorality and practice self-control because sexual immorality also wrongs your brother or sister. Verse 6, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. In other words, sexual sin is never just a private matter. No, it wrongs others. It isn't just a sin against God. It's a sin against others. There is no such thing as sex without consequences. No, sexual immorality always wrongs or literally defrauds others. Your spouse, your children, the person there on the video screen. There is always collateral damage in sexual sin. Even in pornography where you think, who's it hurting? It does untold damage on your marriage, your family, your children, your view of the opposite sex. It is doing massive relational damage. And so, beloved, let the one who is married not transgress or wrong their spouse. Singles in the room, listen to me. Avoid any interaction that would arouse sexual desire that is only appropriate in the context of marriage. Defrauding someone else's future spouse. And then, after giving these three exhortations, notice in verses 6 to 8, Paul turns now to give three motivations for pursuing holiness. Three reasons for why we should pursue sexual purity. Friend, what should motivate you in your desire to please God by remaining sexually pure? Says Paul, Paul says three things should motivate you. Motivation number one, because God is an avenger. Now when I say that word avenger, every teenage Boy in here, their attention perks up. An avenger? Not that kind of avenger. 
Verse 6b, notice after giving here these three exhortations to pursue sexual purity, notice verse 6b, Paul says, because, so here's why, here's the motivation, the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Friend, verse 6 is a compelling reason for why you should abstain from sexual immorality. You know why? Because it reminds us that God will punish the wicked for the sins they have committed against others and namely, most importantly, against God Himself. And if someone persists and refuses to repent of sexual immorality, the Lord, Paul says, will act as the avenger. Because He is holy. And He is just. And therefore, He will punish all evil. And He sees all. And He knows all. And He is watching. And no one will get away with it. He is the avenger. And so, if you are persisting, friend, in unrepentant sexual sin, this warning is meant to be an expression of God's kindness and His mercy and His patience with you because if you persist, you will meet Him as the avenger. Again, Hebrews 13.4, God will judge the sexually immoral. He will judge. He's an avenger. Motivation number two. Not only is he an avenger, you should do it because you were called. You were called. And Paul right now, he wants to make eye contact with you. And he wants to say, remember your calling. Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Why should you pursue sexual purity? Because, believer, you were called by God. And so Paul, he wants them and he wants us to reflect back on our conversion experience. And he wants us to remember Back when you and I, we heard the proclamation of the gospel, right? And, and through that, God graciously and undeservedly and sovereignly called us to Himself. And He saved us from divine wrath. He forgave you. He justified you. He cleansed you and purified you. And He broke the power of canceled sin in your life. He set you free. He credited you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you were called. And in light of that gracious calling, He now calls you not to impurity, but to holiness. In other words, Paul's saying, Christian, live out that holy calling. And sexual immorality is inconsistent with God's character and that calling on your life. You were called. And you've been set apart now to please Him by walking in obedience to Him through His power to abstain from sexual sin. 
And again, I would just be amiss if I didn't remind us, those in the room this morning who have failed in this area, that as Richard Sibb says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Run to the cross and find healing and cleansing and strength in Christ. Finally, motivation number three. Here's the third motivation, because this is not the command of men, but of God. Look there, verse 8. Therefore, in light of this, whoever disregards this, meaning my teaching here, disregards not man, but God. So, this view of sexuality didn't originate with Paul, didn't originate with men, but with God. And to arrogantly disregard what the Bible says about sex and about sexual purity, to arrogantly disregard that is to arrogantly disregard the holy God who made it and who defined them. This is a commandment from God. But this sermon would be incomplete if I didn't ask you this morning, what then, in light of this text, is your plan for abstaining from sexual immorality? Do you have a plan? Do you have a strategy? You need a plan. Because if you wait till you're in the moment, friend, you're toast. So do you have a plan? You, 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 you need a plan. John Piper says you only have five seconds to respond to lust and sexual temptation before it gains a foothold in your life. So you got a plan? You need to know your plan. Let me give you just some helpful suggestions for your strategy for abstaining from sexual immorality. And it really comes down to two words based on this text. Two words. Here's, here should be the start of your plan. First of all, number one, flee. Flee. Verse 3, Paul commands the Thessalonians to abstain. In other words, flee. Run away. Get as far away as you possibly can. Not up to the line. Get as far away from the line as you possibly can. In every way possible, try with all your might to avoid any contact with temptation and sin. 1 Corinthians 6.18, again, flee sexual immorality. Abstain, run, flee, get away. Anything that would arouse in you, visually, verbally, any kind of sexual desire. So what are you doing right now to flee? How, how, how are you trying to flee more and more? That's the first one, flee. Here's the second one, fight. So you flee and you fight. Puritan John Owen said, you mortify, you kill it. Paul calls it here, verse 4, self-control. 
But just so there is no confusion, this, listen, this fighting here, it isn't some kind of just self-effort, just relying on yourself and your own, you know, grit and determination and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps kind of fighting here. No, no, self-control, let me remind you, is a fruit of the Spirit. And so it is a fruit that only the Holy Spirit can produce in you. In fact, look at verse 8. Paul draws attention to this. Verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Why would He remind them of that? Because He wants them to be sure that this fight against sexual immorality doesn't... God doesn't just call you to holiness. He provides you the power to pursue it. And that power comes only through the indwelling Holy Spirit He gives you. So you fight in the power of the Holy Spirit. How do I do that? You cultivate a habit in your life where you live in submission to God's Word and you are dependent upon His Spirit in order to enable you and strengthen you and then in faith, believing the promises of God, you fight in the power of the Holy Spirit. Author Jerry Bridges in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, says this, No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as surely, no one will attain it without effort on his own part as well. So you fight and you flee in the power of the Holy Spirit. So you got a plan. You need a plan. I'd encourage you tonight as you gather together or this afternoon with your small groups, men, women, you talk about your plan. You ask about recommendations. What's been helpful for you in fighting sexual sin? Because brothers and sisters, God has not called you to impurity but to holiness. And this is His will for your life. And you should pursue it with all your might by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.